things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of Cults and Crime. We're a true crime podcast featuring cults, crime, and everything in between. (laughs) And this week, we're bringing you a very exciting cult, because I, Jamie, one of your hosts, are bringing it to you. Wow. Just wow. Shameless (laughs) self-promotion. So, Jamie, do you want to just dive right in? Yeah. Okay, guys, today I'm bringing you what is possibly the most horrific cult to ever come out of Australia. As we take you guys down under, we're going to have to quickly caution those of you who are sensitive to stories of child abuse. This cult was heavily abusing children, and if it's a topic you're sensitive to, please skip this episode, as it will be a recurring theme throughout the episode. So without further ado, Nicole, you ready to be sad? No, but yeah. Well, too bad. (laughs) Annie Hamilton Byron was born Evelyn Edwards on December 30th, 1921. She was born into a very impoverished family, and her mother suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. This is a mental disorder that is characterized by hallucinations and delusions. The family lived near Victoria, region Australia, and her father worked as a railway worker. As her mother's disease progressed, she started engaging in behaviors that caused those around her to question her parenting. She would talk to the dead and once set her own hair on fire. Annie was the oldest of the seven children and would live with her mother until she was put in an orphanage when her mother's behaviors became too bizarre for the locals to ignore. So just like a quick fun fact, because we actually just covered schizophrenia in my classes. So you are 12% more likely to inherit schizophrenia if your mother has schizophrenia, which is opposed to 11% if it's your father. Wait, you said 12 to 11? Yes. So it's pretty close then, right? Oh yeah, it's pretty close, but... She gets slightly more because it was her mother. This is kind of interesting because a lot of the behavior she exhibits is kind of weird. And, you know, obviously there's no proof that she has schizophrenia, let alone paranoid schizophrenia. But I thought it was something worth mentioning. So her life after being put in the orphanage wasn't really important. But it's clear that she grew up wanting more than what she was given with her life. You know, she really wanted a family. She wanted to be a part of something that was at least semi-functional, something that she didn't have growing up. We reconnect with her later in life after she became a yoga teacher. She's a part of the Siddha Yoga movement, receiving Simpat initiation from Swami Makaranda and talked with the Sarki name Ma Yoga Sarkiti. She began to teach her own classes, but wasn't just teaching yoga, but her own version on the path to enlightenment. In 1964, she was leading a weekly meeting to discuss religion and philosophy just outside of Melbourne. She was having these talks in junction with her Sakanitan in connection to her yoga classes. Her success with these classes was largely based on a connection she had made a year prior. She ensnared Dr. Raynor Johnson, an eminent English psychiatrist in charge of Queen's College in the University of Melbourne. So she had convinced him she was clairvoyant. She did this by sleeping with his gardener and getting his schedule. Then she went to him and claimed that she had a vision so then she went to him and said that she had a vision that when he and his wife would travel to India, that his wife would get sick. So he immediately was like, yes, this woman is clairvoyant and became a rapid follower of her. So he began to refer his patients to her yoga classes as well as fellow colleagues who wanted to get some sort of enlightenment or spiritual healing. 
These people were not hippies, but middle-class professionals, and many were nurses and doctors. And the larger the group grew, the more often they would meet. The group started taking LSD as part of religious meetings. During the late 1960s and 70s, they did a sort of partnership with New Haven Hospital in Kew. This is a private psychiatric hospital that was owned by a member of Ani's yoga sect. This is also where many of the members of her group worked as nurses and doctors. This is where they would recruit some of their less elite members of the group, and it's administered treatment to those members. An original member was treated with a mixture of LSD, electroconvulsive therapy, and not one, but two lobotomies. So what was this supposed to be treatment for? Nicole, I don't think he had any disease. I think it was just, quote, quote, religious treatment. Oh, like, hey, we're going to do a lobotomy on you and shock therapy for enlightenment purposes, possibly? (sighs) Yeah. Like, it just sounded like she was... I, I, I don't know why they followed her. Like, you can watch videos and people just say, oh, she was so charismatic and she was so great. But then other people are like, oh, no, she's a crazy woman who's obsessed with plastic surgery. She's obsessed with plastic surgery, but she's like a yogi person, too. That doesn't even make sense. No, like their whole like following her is so weird to me. Like any of the videos you see with her, there's one of her sitting in a field just like humming to herself and is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. And these people are like, yes, we will lobotomize random people for you. So this, the group formed something they called Going Through, and according to interviews conducted by 48 Hours, Going Through was a process where you would be given LSD and put into a dark room and left to trip. Annie would be there, and as the walls started to move and the drugs started to take effect, Annie would guide you through your trip, and this obviously just strengthened their loyalty to her. You know, LSD, she's not the first guru or leader or cult leader to use LSD to get what they want. We've talked about several, I think. Yeah, I was going to say that, that I feel like LSD seems to be a common trait. Well, yeah, the Brotherhood of Internal Sun, like, that was their whole thing was LSD. You know, even the U.S. government experimented with LSD. LSD became a really large part of this group's meetings as well. So during these meetings, Anne Hamilton Bryan would receive a vision there'd be an upcoming apocalypse. So LSD was like a huge part of this group's dichotomy. Like they would use it in just casual meetings as well. So I heard about one meeting in particular where Anne showed up in flowing white robes and they had dry ice trailing behind her. And you know, everyone's tripping on LSD. So to them, like she looks like God. But to anyone who wasn't on LSD, it just looked ridiculous. So one of these meetings, Anne had a vision. In her vision, there was an upcoming apocalypse, and since she was the female reincarnation of Jesus, it was her responsibility to collect as many children as possible in order to save them. The Colpot land in Fairney Creek was overlooking a lake, and this would be their headquarters in 1968, and she began to collect children. Between 1968 and 1975, Annie, along with her husband Bill, adopted 14 infants and young children. Who let somebody adopt 14 infants and children? That, that is an obscene amount of kids. Well, through encouragement to her own followers, a few of them gave up their children to her. I, I am not kidding you. Oh my god, that's ridiculous. So they did this to create a quote-quote master race, and you're like, what, master race like Nazis? A hundred percent like the Nazis. She wanted all the kids to look like, and she bleach-dyed their hair blonde. 
Well, the thing, well, the thing is, and I can't stress enough, like young kids, she bleached their hair blonde, almost infants. Why not just not? Why not just let the, I guess, non-blondes, not join your weird, child breeding ring? I don't even know what to call it. Because she wanted as many as possible, and I, and I guess just making them blonde was just a bonus. Like she was really into looks and how things looked, and she liked the aesthetic of blonde children. So. A few people gave her kids, but she also stole kids. The very first child she stole was Sarah Moore. After Sarah was born, a doctor who was a member of the cult placed a pillow over her mother's head, and a nurse injected her with tranquilizers. Sarah's mother was only 16 when they stole the child right out of her arms. Sarah grew up thinking Annie was her biological mother, and most of the children were told this. Overall, Annie would collect over 28 children through, like, horrific means. Some were given to her by cult members, of course, but, like, she stole children. Like, she stole so many children. One second. So, okay. I, I say that. Okay, so since so many of the members were doctors, she also ran a scam through them, where in exchange for a miracle, they would give her children to them. The doctor would find a young single mother with a young child, and the doctor would poison the mom. When the mother became too bedridden and desperate, Annie would go to them. She would heal them in exchange for absolute servitude. And once they are desperate enough to agree, the doctor would stop poisoning them, and then the child would just belong to Annie. That's disgusting. You know, some of the members would question where Annie were getting these children from, and she said she birthed them. Birthed 28 children. And, but was never pregnant. She took to wearing maternity clothing almost constantly, and she claimed some of the children were twins or even triplets. Okay, that's absolutely ridiculous. Later on, when at, when later on when they would ask Annie why she started this, she just would say, "I love children." But you would never guess that from how she treated them. So I talked about how their hair was bleached blonde. That wasn't the only thing that she did to make them look alike. The boys also had their hair cut into bowl cuts, and the girls had their hair cut with a fringe, which is just bangs for you know us Yanks. And then she had the girls have identical colored bows. The children were also constantly dressed alike. The children were also constantly dressed alike and controlled to shape them to be as similar as possible. This is from a small portion of a book entitled Unseen, Unheard, and Unwanted by Sarah Moore, which was the first child that Annie stole. Also, once a week, or more if there was considered an individual that had a weight problem, we were weighed and the results entered into a book that communicated with Annie. She had this horror of fatness and would have obsessed with body, weight, and shape. She always insisted that we girls were getting too fat, even though in some cases it was malnutrition rather than kilos that was causing our bellies to stick out. Um, I'll start over with the second part. Weight was a very serious business, particularly serious for us, because if it was considered that we were putting on too much weight, we would have our food rations cut down, and that was a dreadful proposition. Food being the most important food being the most important thing within our lives. We, we girls viewed the scales with hatred. They made our miserable lives even worse. So I'm going to be relying on this book really heavily for the rest of the episode since I don't think there's a better possible way to understand what these children went through than their own recountings. Hmm. Like if you see pictures of these, like on our Instagram, Cults and Crime Pod, I'm going to post pictures of the children. In no way, shape, or form were any of these children anywhere near being obese. So 
so I can't imagine putting any of them, like, they're kids. You don't put kids on restricted diets like that. Well, you don't put them on restricted diets when they're not overweight. Yeah. And it's like, um, so in the book as well, she posted, like, what they were given for food every day. And it was, like, three pieces of fruit, steamed vegetables, two pieces of fruit, water. It's like, that's not enough food for a child to live on. That's ridiculous. So in Sarah Moore's book, she speculates as to why Annie wanted the children to look alike. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to share her speculations with you guys. Because you guys know that we love to speculate wildly. Yes, we do. These children were attained in many ways, and most of them were not exactly legal. So she had papers for the children thanks to her followers. Many were doctors and lawyers who were willing to lie to give Annie what she wanted. According to Sarah Moore, she wanted them to look alike partially for aesthetic reasons, but also to transport them more easily. The children took trips overseas with Annie, and to get them past border control, it was convenient all the children looked alike, since one blonde child with a bowl cut in a photo looks just like another blonde child with a bowl cut. It was just an easy way to transport these children that she had gained illegally across borders. So the children either purposely or accidentally had their individual identities stripped away from them. So I want to think, I want you guys to just do a little exercise where you think about growing up and begging your parents to let you pick your outfits out and to put your clothes on yourself or, you know, trying to wear your favorite color every day. These children didn't have that. They didn't have anything. These children weren't even allowed to eat, let alone stand out in any meaningful way. Their identities were stripped down to blonde children in matching clothes, with matching hairdos, singing in a choir. Which is horrible. This is the time of their lives that they were, that's how you create your own individuality. And it was stripped from them. And the children were also drugged daily with tranquilizers in order to keep them calm. They were never really allowed to be children. They would invent their own games that they would work within the rules of their daily lives, but if it was noticed that they were having fun, the rules would change and they would the game would be banned. They wouldn't be able to play anymore until they made a new game that fit into the rules and then it happened all over again. Like anytime they noticed the children having fun, they immediately shut it down. But what's wrong with them having fun? I don't get it. Um, children that are having fun are loud, and loud children make people look at them. And that's the last thing they wanted is someone to take a too good of a look at how many children they had. So the house that they lived in didn't have electricity for a long time. So not only did they not have access to luxuries like television and microwaves, the household also had to do all the washing by hand. This was a constant source of stress for the home since Annie wasn't prepared to do the washing for the children she had stolen, and children were children. They make messes. So in the morning, there would be bed checks of sorts. If someone had wet the bed, and according to Sarah, most nights someone would wet their bed, they would be forced to wash their sheets on their own by hand instead of eating breakfast and sometimes lunch if it took too long. Before they got to the washing, the child would be shoved still in their pajamas into a cold shower no matter what the temperature was outside until they decided the child was then clean. They would also hit the child with the belt. One boy got the nickname Zebra from the other kids, since he wet his bed almost every night. The beatings he received has- That's absolutely horrible. Like, 
it's just it's I just it's just I, I honestly don't know what to say like I know it's a podcast and like my job is to say something but there's just nothing to say about it like there's just there's absolutely nothing that's like explains it or like we all know, like, hearing that, we all know it's bad. No one's sitting here being like, oh, well, the kid probably know. Like, that poor child, he was being, like, he wet the bed because he was being abused. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's really common for children that are abused to wet the bed. Yeah. So it's like, well, you're abusing a child. No doubt he's going to wet the bed. Also, it's a child. No doubt they're going to wet the bed. It just happens. Yeah, they're, they're kids. And she's, she's torturing them. Well, she and all the rest of her followers... Annie traveled around often and would lead the children with what they called aunties, who were other female members of the church. The aunties were no less strict or kinder to the children. Annie would leave a book called Mommy's Roll Book, where she would list actions and punishments for the children. An example from Sarah's book was, if David rocks or sways during meditation, he is to be hit over the head with a chair. Oh my god, and she had specific rules for children. For each yeah, child? yeah, well, I think it was like there's probably a lot of general rules as well, but like you know, this child was acting up by swaying during meditation, probably falling asleep, you know, and then probably falling asleep because he's exhausted from not being fed enough, he doesn't have enough nutrition, and he's being tranquil like you're giving him tranquilizers, but I guess you know, whatever, <laughs> let's just beat him with a chair, that's how you fix everything, right. And, like, the whole thing was weird. Like, they didn't have electricity, so she literally was, like, carrying torches around half the time. Well, the house was, like, in utter darkness because Annie had a weird thing about light. Like, all the light bulbs, once they did get electricity, had to be under 20 watts. Yeah, this seems like some abnormal behavior for sure. So the children were also taught to fear the police. They were told if the police came to take them away, they would be put into sacks, beaten, and raped. The children often did drills where they would practice hiding in case the police came. The house was designed with secret holes in the crawl space below the home, where the children were taught to be absolutely silent and still for hours at a time. As the children got older and more rebellious, it became harder for Annie to exert control over them, until a boiling point hit and she kicked Sarah Moore, her first stolen child, out. Yeah, these children, well, to be fair, like, they did educate these children. They were actually very well educated. Like, don't get me wrong, like, nothing, like, she's shitty. She's garbage. But, like, they were well educated. Like, the children knew multiple languages. They do math. They did, you know, they, like, they were well educated. So, like, she wasn't, like, getting kicked out isn't exactly that, but they were also homeschooled, and I can't imagine she did the proper paperwork for that. Well, how would she be able to get away with it, I would imagine, right? Hopefully. So, because she kicked Sarah out, Sarah would end up being responsible for bringing the police to the compound. Friday, the 14th of August, 1987, the police raided the compound. At the time, Annie wasn't present on the premises, but in was overseas. The children fought and cried when the police took them away, believing their lives were normal, and they had no idea Annie was not their mother. Like, they asked the kids in later interviews, and they are like, my mother was beautiful, my mother was gorgeous, my mother was the light, my mother was this, my mother was that. They, they loved her. Like, they honestly loved her. Well, yeah, it must be really hard because you don't know how else to live. Like, that is your life. You think it's normal because you would have no idea otherwise. Yeah, and for a long time, they didn't have access to television. And even when they did get a television in the home, like, 
any small infraction that they take it away. So they never really got to see any version of the outside world. So they really thought like this is what love is, which is just terribly sad. Like it's just terrible. Well, that's criminal on its own. You know, it's like we as human beings are creatures of love and we need certain fundamental things in our lives. Everyone does. And it sounds like that was stripped from them and not even was it stripped, but they were told that that's just how it is. So after the raid, Annie fled Australia and remained on the run for six years. In June 1993, the year Munich were born, Blue, police from Australia and the UK and the US, working together on Operation Forest, tracked down her in the town of Huntleyville in, Cat in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. They are arrested and extradited back to Australia and charged with conspiracy to defraud and to commit perjury by falsely registering the births of three unrelated children as their own triplets. According to the age, Annie and Bill, her husband, were only forced to pay a fine of $5,000. Wait, 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 wait. For multiple kidnappings? She well, the thing is... High, high fee of well, the thing is, she may have kidnapped these kids, but the parents still gave them up. Yeah, but kidnapping is kidnapping. But how are you going to prove they were kidnapped? Like, a lot of the people gave their kids away. Like, it was under coercion and horrible things, but, like, they gave their kid away. It's just one of those things where the law can only do so much, especially when you have paperwork to back up your claims and, you know, and this was you know this was a while ago this was you know 1993 so it's not like and I don't know what the court like courts are like in Australia and I don't know what it's better now but you know the law sometimes just isn't fast enough to catch up to people that do horrific acts because it takes someone doing the act to realize that someone's capable of it there is a little shining ray of light because there were several cases of lawsuits after the official court case in um, August 2009, two individuals received financial compensation from Annie after suing her. Her granddaughter, Rebecca Cook Hamilton, sued her in 2007 for alleged psychiatric and psychological illnesses. She alleged that she received cruel and inhuman treatment from Annie and her servants, including beatings, being locked in a freezer shed overnight, and being forced to take medications. She also alleged that she was given insignificant food. She was awarded an estimated $250,000. Not only that, but a former member of the fa family, Cynthia Chan, alleged that she paid the sum of $352,000 to Annie over her like time in the cult for real estate in Alinda, Victoria, but the property was never transferred to her. She also alleged that she paid the sum of $70,000 to Annie for another property. This, too, was also never transferred. Annie said that she had no memory of the matter, but Chan's judgment was estimated over another, once again, $250,000. So it sounds like a lot, but in the 1980s, the police estimated that Annie's fortune was as much as $50 million. That's crazy. So I didn't really get too far into the organization on this cult, just because I didn't care about her or how well she did because she's garbage and it made me angry. But it was a multinational cult. They had properties, like multiple properties in Australia and a few in America. And... I think even a few in Europe. So she was, 
she was big. Like, she was, she did, unfortunately, very well for herself. And I just don't see why. But I guess, you know, you're a pretty blonde girl. Giving people LSD in, in the 80s and 70s. That's probably about all it took, I guess. I don't know. So in the na so in the 1980s, police estimated that Annie's oh no. All litigation stopped after Annie was diagnosed with dementia, and Annie has since passed away, but still there's still a small following for her to this day in Australia. Like, once again, guys, I don't understand why people followed her. I don't know what the appeal was. She was just a white lady into yoga. Like, go to Starbucks, there's 50 of them. I don't understand. Is that it? Yes. Okay. That is absolutely crazy. No, it's just... Uh, I, don't, I don't know. The, the whole thing is just, like, very deeply upsetting to me, I guess. I, I totally get it, because I'm also upset. Those poor kids. Like, the pictures of the compound and the children are insane. Could you look at these pictures and you would be like, oh, what a sweet family. And there's pictures of them singing in the choir because they were all, you know, of course, singers as well. She made them all sing in a choir together. Sorry. Tell me why I'm getting, like, Sound of Music vibes, like, hardcore right now. Like, to be fair, like, that's what a lot of people said about the cult. Like, they just reminded them of Sound of Music. Because they were all these blonde little singing children in these identical smocks. And just, they were adorable. They were just, like, precious children that had their lives ripped away from them. I and, had no idea it was happening either. And Annie is garbage and all of her followers. Like, nurses and doctors did these to these children. They knew exactly, like, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you've taken a nutrition course, you know how much food a child needs to live, and you're giving them three pieces of fruit for breakfast, and then, you know, washed down with tranquilizers, like, you know better. You have, you have education. You know better. It still boggles my mind about how manipulative, I guess, these people, this cult leaders can be. It's just, I look forward to every other week when you talk about our cults because it's always something new and it's always something absolutely horrible but it always teaches me something that I didn't know before yeah like I love true crime and that's how I became interested in cults is because of true crime because every once in a while like a true crime show will like put a cult in there to keep it interesting I guess and that's why I got just really drawn in because those cult stories to me are even more horrific than any serial because well, they the touch so many people, so, much, so many more people than the typical serial killer. Yeah. The grand scheme of just everything that goes on with these cults, like the hundreds of thousands of people, they've ruined, like they just ruined their lives. And people, and they do it willingly. Like they give their lives away. It's like, it's almost like those, those women that showed up to the court for Ted Bundy, I guess. It's kind of a way where, unless, but um, thank God. Bundy didn't get to exert any control over them but like it's like that where it's like these people are just giving their happiness and lives and joy away for what like what do these people really have a smile and a reassuring you know hand on the shoulder the potential for enlightenment yeah the potential for enlightenment I just I don't think that anything that she did in my opinion was enough to make people think she was worthwhile I I'm, like, I might be mistaken, there might be something that I missed, but she just seemed so 
run-of-the-mill to me and it makes me so angry that they did this to these children because of this woman. But I guess like on that note of just outrighteous rage, we are going to leave you guys for the day because I could probably talk for 30 more minutes about what trash she is, but no one wants to hear that. No. <laughs> All right, guys. So next Monday, we will have an all-new crime episode. And we'll see you next week. Hey, guys. See you next week for that crime episode. We're super excited and ready to go.